Heard in over 40 countries and available on over 20 listening platforms. The Crypto Corner is your trusted source for blockchain news. Catch the latest episode each week on iTunes, Spotify, or by telling your smart device to play The Crypto Corner. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes. What's up, everybody? Crypto Kid here. And this week, I'm joined by a very special guest. He's an attorney at law practicing in the state of New York and a fellow cryptocurrency enthusiast. Please give a warm welcome to James Burrell. You and I both know there's really no one-size-fits-all for cryptocurrency regulation. Some countries welcome it, some ban its usage outright and ownership outright. Uh, I want to ask, in your opinion, do you think modern monetary policies are too outdated to be applied to cryptocurrencies? Do you think some countries are, are kind of stuck in a in their old ways maybe like what do you think is the reasoning behind that and is there a way that we can get these governments to be more welcoming to it or do you think they view it as a threat well to be honest i think that um i think in order for you to if for a government to think it's a threat they have to understand it first uh you don't you know i don't think they understand it yet maybe some within certain governments may understand it and maybe those people within those particular governments may think, okay, well, this could be a threat. Um, but at the same time, I just think that there, the, the major issue is, is what problem is it solving? If you're in a developed, let's call it like the G20, right? So if these are developed countries uh, with developed economies, crypto is not really solving any problems because you can do electronic payments pretty easily through various platforms um, and you can do cross-border transactions pretty easy. Um, so there, it's not really at least solving the payment problem. Um, what I do think it would solve in, in the G20, and maybe this goes to your modern or your monetary policy issue, is it will solve the problem of inflation. But because of the way the economies are today, we aren't facing any real inflationary events yet because, you know, like for instance, in the U S we have 40 million people who are unemployed, right? So that's a whole bunch of demand that's sucked out. Uh, there's not going to be any inflation to worry about, even though they've added maybe almost, you know, $10 trillion in additional stimulus to the economy, but there's no inflation because there's no demand, you know, and there's no demand because of the pandemic. However, once there's demand, uh, then you start to see the inflation kick up and then people are like, oh, wait, all of a sudden my milk costs $15 instead of $3 or whatever. And then that's when they'll, that's when I think people will start to recognize the value in cryptocurrency as a class as a whole when they say, okay, well, damn, you know, if, if I, had, you know, if I kept some of my assets in, a cryptocurrency or something that would act as a hedge against the, in, the inflation. Whereas if I'm constantly using, you know, storing all my, my money in dollars, each passing day, they're getting less and less valuable. So, you know, so, so then I think G20 countries would find crypto to be a solution to that problem. But for now, it's not, it's not really a solution. So uh, in developing countries, it's a solution for payments because it's an easy way for payments to be facilitated. 
and in developing countries such as, they're not even really developing, but they feel developing like Venezuela is is a solution for payments and inflation because of their, you know, hyperinflation, such and such, just like in Zimbabwe and some other countries as well. So, you know, I don't know if current governments are necessarily afraid of it. I do think that, um, I, I do think that they just don't understand and they don't want to understand because it's like, it's, it's, it reminds me of how years ago people were thinking about the internet, right? And people were like, well, why would I use a web page to order food when I could just call the restaurant? I mean, I can still get it delivered. Like I can just call the restaurant, it'll take my order and my, num- my credit card over the phone and the food will get delivered. Like, why do I, like, it's not really solving a problem, but over time we've started to notice how, yes, you know, nowadays people couldn't live without these services because they're so used to the additional convenience. I think that's where we'll be with crypto just still early in the game, you know, it's like 10 years. So with, with the government, not really, you say the government doesn't really embrace it or understand it. Like as far as like, you mean like the U S government? Well, I think probably most G20 governments. So I think here in the U.S., you, you are hearing some chatter from like the Trump administration that they're not happy about some of the aspects of crypto. Um, but then you have certain states like Wyoming and other states that are all on board um, that are passing some really good uh, crypto-related uh, legislation. Even New York. Um, even New York, to some extent, is trying to navigate the waters a little better. I mean, I think New York in the beginning, because of its reputation of being the financial capital, of at least the United States, if not the world, was a little arrogant about its position in crypto. And so when they try to do things like the New York Agreement and, you know, and the bit license and they thought they were being ahead, but they really didn't truly understand the nature of, of crypto. And that's the irony is, is because of the ethos of crypto, meaning that there's no real central authority that, you know, everybody can contribute. You don't have to be a Goldman Sachs MBA, you, like just a guy who's, you know, like a farmer with a tractor and he gets, he reads about it and mines some Bitcoin or whatever. And, and so, like, just like the state of Wyoming, no one ever thought of Wyoming as some bastion of capitalism, but they are the leader right now in crypto legislation. I definitely do want to touch on bit licenses here in a minute for sure, because there's a few interesting things about that and a question I wanted to ask you. But first, you got companies like Kaspersky, they're developing and pushing for blockchain voting. Do you think this is a good route to go? Do you think we're a little ahead of ourselves? Do you think? blockchain voting is a potential threat to democracy or do you think it's something that we should embrace and, and push forward with as fast as, as companies like Kaspersky wants to? One, I'm a little suspicious, but, you know, maybe I'm a little suspicious of Kaspersky and keep in mind, I used to be a big fan. I used to subscribe to their products all the time, but I was troubled um, when I learned that they had a lot of senior management who were connected to the Russian Secret Service, um, you know, and this is like verifiable things. It's not like some tin hat conspiracy YouTube, you know, wormhole. Like you see this stuff like it's very, this is like open knowledge. So I'm suspicious 
when they are kind of the thought leader when it comes to any sort of technology. That being said, it doesn't mean that their voice isn't important or it doesn't even mean that they're not right. So, but I'm just saying I'm typically suspicious. Now back to block, like using the blockchain to vote, I think it's a, a good solution. Um, I think it's being done at least in some communities in Africa, they might've tried it. And uh, I, I think for now, maybe it could be used as a backup. So let's say like you have, like right now, at least in the US, you know, voting is based state by state, like the way the, the, the laws regarding voting is set up. Right, county by county. Right, exactly. So exactly, county by county, state by state. It's very local. Um, it'd be interesting to see maybe if they rolled out, you know, tested in some smaller counties and maybe have, you know, some counties where people are tech savvy enough where they would be able to use it and then to see if it kind of is a backup system to paper balloting, right? So, you know, you you put your, the way you vote in New York County, Manhattan, you go to the thing, you fill out a paper sheet and scan the sheet in. So the scan, the vote is, is kept by the machine, like it's just, you know, but there's a paper ballot to back up in case something goes wrong with them. You know, they could always audit, there's an audit trail. So I would even say maybe using blockchain as one additional level of that audit trail where you do like a proof of existence of that paper ballot sheet around the same time. So when it's getting scanned into the machine, it also, you know, proof of existence that the ballot sheet, the vote was cast at this time, this period, and that record is hashed so such that we, you know, if, if God forbid someone hacks the voting machines and they try to change votes around or whatever, due to the immutability of the blockchain, you could always go back and say, hey, look, you know, <laughs> there's no 51% attack against Ethereum. So this is what it was, right? So, but I think it should be tested on in smaller counties where it's easier you can get good data and see, um, you know, like if there's like a thousand people voting, right? It's super easy to, to kind of work through the kinks and see what happens. And, uh, and, and then maybe if, if it worked, it should be rolled out greater. I do think as people get more comfortable with technology, uh, people will start to, you know, embrace, you know, blockchain related technologies. Uh, but for now, I think most people are just looking at it as a speculative asset. And uh, they're not really looking at the other use cases that a lot of points have. How would you feel about like a permission-based blockchain platform replacing traditional county clerk and recorder's offices? Do you think like a do you think a blockchain platform could potentially do that? Is it is it secure and strong enough? And well, permission blockchain is just a different. It's just essentially a database, right? That is managed differently than so it doesn't. It might not have one attack vector, you know. Whereas like a normal database. Maybe it's located on one server or a cloud, and so there's an attack vector there. But a, a, per, a permission blockchain would be like, okay, well, it's controlled by one person, but the attack vector, there's no one attack vector unless you kill the person who's controlled. So I don't know. I mean, I, I guess if it makes people feel more comfortable about 
um, using a permission blockchain for that. In fact, you know, there's this um, company called um, Collidio, which uh, like I'm actually using it because I'm trying to develop a, a blockchain related um, business idea. And it allows you to create your own permission blockchain and then kind of run uh, different applications on top of it. And it's really cool. So, um, so I'm, 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 it's kind of funny you're asking me about that because I'm toying around with that right now. Um, but uh, I, I don't, I mean, I think in the grand scheme of life, people will ultimately trust a permissionless blockchain over a permissioned blockchain. But I don't think that doesn't mean that there's no value in having blockchains that are permission. And I think it really just depends on the nature. Like there's some things that just, it makes more sense to have one, it, not to run on a blockchain because it, now you have this distribution lag and, and so on and so forth where, you know, other things it's, it's better because like I said, there's not one attack vectors. What about an open ledger, public ledger? Do you think something like that, like, cause a lot of what you find in a, at a, a county clerk and recorder's office is often, you know, publicly available records that you could go on maybe to their website and check out. Do you, do you think like the underlying technology of blockchain would be secure enough if, cause I mean, the question is, is, is would they be able to secure that network, that blockchain from all the, the potential attack vectors? That's the question. And we see, we see so many attacks right now where there's entire city infrastructures that get held for ransom, right? They demand Bitcoin. And if these, if these you know, cities and their infrastructure is not even secure enough to protect against that, like what's the answer to that? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. And I think the answer is, at least in the near term, to use um, a blockchain that has enough of hash rate and, and such such as like bitcoin or ethereum where it would reduce the likelihood of any that kind of attack being successful so and to answer then i would say yes a public blockchain would probably be better um, now at the end of the day what what would be um important is to figure out okay well since you're using a public blockchain obviously all the information is out there what information do you want out there right and if you, you know, if it's a hash of something, uh, it's a hash of information that just proves that the information existed at a certain time. And, and there's a way to decode that hash when needed such that, okay, you know, on the public blockchain, this looks like a hash of a number, but let's say I need, they need to figure out, okay, well, where did James Burrell vote for whoever? There's a way that, you know, either I submit, uh, I sign the information or whoever signs the information has access that shows that, yes, I'm authorizing the release of that information. And then the, the uh, uh, you know, county clerk or whoever can say, oh, or here's the information, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I, I think that could work. Um, but I do think a public blockchain would be better than a permission uh, kind of local blockchain. And, and frankly, you know, the problem with a lot of government systems is we as people, we exploit the government. And, I, I, and what I mean by that is that when, we, when, when people are buying goods and services, like we typically, we pay what we pay for them. 
but when we're selling them to a government, we typically sell them like at really highly inflated prices that usually in the long run hurt their budget. Why? Because governments typically have big budgets and naturally you want to make as much money as possible. Um, so unfortunately, I feel that the, the systems that the government has are antiquated and terrible, not so much because they couldn't have good systems, but because they can't buy good systems at the same price that me and you could buy. So that's why these things get hacked, you know, not because there's no way to have a, a stronger system, but it's typically, look, you have the same people working in government. They're not necessarily the most sophisticated people. They probably have older uh, terminals, you know, maybe they're working with some old Windows 95 or, you know, yeah, XP or some bullshit because they just can't, you know, they have to go through this whole bureaucratic process to switch all that computers out and so on and so forth. Um, no, so yeah, of course they can get, they're, they're more likely to be exposed to some simple phishing attack or something where, you know, they can be held up for ransom. Um, but I think that's a different, that's a different issue, a different question that I think people who are contracting with governments needs to really decide uh, how to solve that. Because yeah, if I'm trying to sell product to the government, I want to get as much money as I can. But at the end of the day, you know, there's also a lot of waste in, in these things where people do these no bid contracts. And, and so they just, they hire their friend who may not be as good as somebody else, but they're hired because they're friends. So then the product isn't that good and, da, 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 and, and this and that. So that's a, a real complicated issue. Because of that, I think it would be these kind of technologies. They're not ready for prime time in the government. You know, so you got to think if they're ready for prime time in private, you need to give the government maybe five to six years because they're always getting antiquated technology. Right? So maybe five or six years from now, they might be ready in prime time for the government if they're ready today in prime time for the private sector. So now that's kind of my, my position on it. So back really quick for a minute here on, on the point of kind of like the government t taking cryptocurrency and, and not so much blockchain, but some cryptocurrencies is a threat. On the point of like things like Libra or things like Bitcoin, how now they want to know, you know, if you're dabbling in digital assets when you file your taxes and all that, right? First of all, you have coin mixers, so you can mix up your Bitcoin and Ethereum. But something that is inherently private like Monero, do you think something like that could really, if I guess leveraged properly, could really be a solid monetary policy for years to come? Oh, I don't. So... I I own some Monero, um, and I'm more privy towards the privacy coins in general. So I'm more of a proponent of Zcash than Monero, uh, just because I think Zcash is more private um, when you're using totally shielded to shielded transactions. Mm -hmm. uh, plus, you have the added fact that you can add memos, and you can literally like communicate. You know, like we could write letters and stuff to each other sending Zcash. Uh, Zcash is the easiest way. You could literally send a Bitcoin private key and a Zcash memo. And so, you know, you wouldn't, you know, you could, when people, the public ledger might tell you, okay, when that, those coins have been moved, but you don't know if it's Satoshi moving or if it's somebody who Satoshi gave a private key to move. 
I feel like because Monero's default is privacy, I think that it will be difficult for Monero to shake off um, the whole underground, uh, you know, who meets the criminal things. I mean, a lot of, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these uh, malware are, are attached to mining uh, Monero on people's terminals. Here. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's all about reputation. I mean, I think the, the cryptocurrency and the team is pretty good and what they do. Um, but I don't think it'll ever be prime time. It may remain prime time in the underworld, but but I don't think it'll it'll be prime time, you know, for most people just because of that. I just think it's uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but I mean, it, it's just a cryptocurrency. It shouldn't be that way, but it's just how it is. And there's so many choices. The last topic I wanted to touch on with you really quick was about the bit licenses. And we both know they're very difficult to secure. Very little have been given out. Uh, I think, what, two, three weeks ago, Eris X finally got one. On that topic, I wanted to ask you, has the bit license been important for fostering financial innovation in New York? Or has it just been kind of an overreach? What's your opinion? Okay, so my opinion is that I think it impeded uh, at least crypto-related financial innovation just because uh, it's just yet one more barrier to entry. And, you know, the sad part is really some of the people who were responsible for even setting up the bit license, you know, it's again back to that point of, you know, some, there was some alleged cronyism and, you know, you got to kiss this guy's ring in order to get it um, so forth. And um, so it's, you know, I think it's, it sadly has hurt New York. Um, that being said, if you do get one, now you have this additional branding because now you're like one of the few companies that can actually, you know, openly be involved in this marketplace. I don't, in a weird way, I think those who have it want to keep it because it keeps, you know, now raises the barrier to entry. Um, and they've already gone through the process, so they're like, why don't we make it easier to have competitors? So we, we, I, I just, I think New York could have done something better. And I think, again, that goes to how, how little they really understood about um, the technology and its place in society. That's my opinion. And, um, and I think that when you try to use old, you try to characterize new technology and old with old laws, there's there's sometimes a disconnect in in it. So you know, but it is what it is. I, mean, I, I should try to apply for a bit license actually just to go through the process. It's just I don't want to spend I think it's like four or five grand to that's not including the legal work. Obviously I can do the legal work. Expensive to pay for it, so yeah, you can pay for that and you don't get the money back. And God forbid, you don't get the license and you're out four grand. You know, like that's you just buy some crypto. You know, your startup, you're trying to get started. You don't, you want to use your your cash balances to pay for technology or to developers or something. You want to like pay for the license. So if you develop offshore, or you can say, you know what, screw it, I'll just put like a 
URL or you know, some sort of location blocker on my software and just say, screw it, I'm not going to be available to New York people. And I was developed. So that's how Wyoming and some other states have been able to uh, you know, get ahead of New York when it comes to um, you know, being the prime location for a lot of crypto-related businesses is because of these kind of barriers uh, to entry that the state of New York yeah. Well, that's that's definitely an interesting take. I, I was wondering because, you know, I've talked to a few people about it and they haven't really seen any, you know, step change in the way, you know, I guess in terms of it really changing the way things are or really innovating the financial markets. Because you look at the statement that was given by the NYDFS and what their what their goal was and why they wanted to make the bit license what it was. And that's that's kind of the consensus that I've that I've gotten from people is that you know they're not they haven't really gotten to that point yet they haven't really fulfilled what they set out to do with it yet even though they've been issuing them it's really just been a, a slow process but I mean right well think about too the licenses are to be able to have a virtual currency business right and because it's under uh, you know the Department of Financial Services. By implication, it suggests that any crypto-related business is some sort of financial product or some. Now, we were just talking earlier about using the blockchain as a source code as a backup for the balance. Right? That's not finance-related. It has nothing to do with finance. It is literally using it as as a decentralized database to help secure. Uh, the integrity of voting. Zero to do with finance, right? That being said, any company that wanted to try to develop that product would have to get a, you know, a bit like At least they're going to develop that in New York. So that's why I said that it shows how um, the people who were behind this uh, didn't really understand or at least see the broader, the broader application of the technology because from their perspective, it's looked at a financial, only a financial related instrument. Therefore, it should be under the purview and regulated as a financial product, like a stock or a bond or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's the way she goes. Well, we've about hit that 30 minute mark, man. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I've, I love gaining your insight, man. Take the floor for a minute and let everybody know what, what you got going on and, and do you think? I don't know. I mean, other than working and trying to stay safe in the pandemic, I think, you know, my, my law practice is corporate. I do a lot of um, uh, mergers, acquisitions related, like securities related things. Um, I have a client who's doing a private coin placement, um, you know, trying to have it exempt as an exempt securities offering, and we, we are acknowledging that it's a security, although we just have it exempt as, as an exempt securities offering. Um, I'm uh, personally, I'm with another business venture, I'm trying to develop a, uh, a way to use blockchain to for uh, supply chain management such that it can help businesses that may not have large banking relationships uh, be able to obtain lines of credit because 
their financial information is being transmitted to the public blockchain in a way where it's not revealing, you know, who the client is and, um, and how much they're charging them and this and that and so on and so forth. It's just revealing the existence of client who is willing to pay $5 million a year and that the business is able to generate 25% margin. Therefore, it has the financial wherewithal to be able to borrow whatever 500 grand. So I'm trying to develop a way to help um, using blockchain to help uh, businesses such as, you know, maybe a, bit, a business that doesn't have a banking relationship with JP Morgan or something, but, you know, a JP Morgan could look at this record and say, oh, well, we know that these guys are credit worthy because of this data that we're seeing. And uh, it's interesting what I've, we, sort of the preliminary stuff that I've done, um, you know, I'm trying to basically use some current APIs that submit credit data and some other kind of data and link that up with blockchain and we'll see what happens. So that's how I got started learning about Colladio. Look, I'm not like a major coder. I'm like doing all this like as a hobby behind the scenes. So, you know, there's some, uh, uh, call it, um, <laughs> you know, learning curve issues. But, uh, you know, we'll see. I hope it works out and, and this just gets to a point where I can build it into something that can attract some investors and, and whatever. So that's what I'm doing. That's awesome, man. I love it. That's a great idea, man. Empowering other people using blockchain tech. That's what it's all about, man. I love it. Well, James, you're a gentleman and a scholar. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, man. Thanks for awesome pleasure, Crypto Kid. And I will see you on the discords and all that stuff. Amen. We'll see you around, man. You have yourself a good one. Have you again on sometime, yeah? Yeah, for sure. Whatever. Just I'll, I'll try to be a little better about linking up you know, schedules. But the best way to hit me up is on WhatsApp. You got it, man. That's awesome. Sounds good. We'll talk to you soon then. All right, everybody, that's it for today's episode. Thank you for stopping by, and I hope you have a great weekend. The Crypto Corner with your host, Crypto Kid. It is a huge deal. There are tons of people working on this, from financial institutions to technology companies, startups, and universities. For the first time in human history, we have the key to unlock our door. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. BTC is currently trading at roughly $9,550. BCH is currently trading at roughly $246. ETH is currently trading at roughly $234. XMR is currently trading at roughly $68. LTC is currently trading at roughly $46. ON T is currently trading at roughly 55 cents. ZRX is currently trading at roughly 33 cents. BAT is currently trading at roughly 21 cents. XRP is currently trading at roughly 20 cents. XLM is currently trading at roughly 7 cents. Produced on location at Chicken Valve Studio. Studio. Studio.